This is What's Ahead, and I'm Steve Forbes. Today's episode is brought to you by U.S. Bank. U.S. Bank believes that hard work works, and for everyone working toward a goal, U.S. Bank is here to help. And if you would, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show. In a moment, we'll hear my conversation with Burton Malkiel. If there is a Mount Rushmore for great investment minds, Burton Malkiel would be on it. But first, as I look at the week ahead, here's what you should be looking out for. We're going to get an unemployment report. We'll see if it's as good as last month's. Also, note, U.S. and China are going to restart trade negotiations. U.S. delegation is going to China. A week later, a Chinese delegation is coming to the U.S. The thing to keep in mind on this is, remember, tariff is another word for sales tax. We've got to get these sales taxes removed. Both of our economies will boom. I think China's willing to cut a deal, buy more of our liquefied natural gas, more of our ag products, at least pretend to open up more of their market to U.S. companies and stop harassing them as much. But the key thing is, what enforcement mechanism is going to be put in place? The U.S. wants the right to impose tariffs, reimpose tariffs, if we don't like what we think China is doing, and China won't be allowed to retaliate. I don't think they're going to agree to that. So they got to get around that. Eventually, I think they will. Now, the other thing to watch out for, the Federal Reserve is having a meeting next week, what they call the FOMC, the Federal Reserve Open Market Committee. One of the things is the Fed is not infallible. Herman Cain, President Trump wanted to nominate him to the Federal Reserve Board. That got shot down. Steve Moore, another prospective nominee, has been uh, taking a lot of flack. But one person I hope President Trump will consider is Judy Shelton. She was in my documentary in Money We Trust, which is on public television stations. You can find it in moneywetrust.org. But Judy does have a Ph.D. in economics. She has all the credentials those people like, but she realizes you must have sound money, and she will ask the hard questions the Federal Reserve does not want to hear. They're insular. She will bring good outside perspectives. I hope the president nominates her. Now... Usually I give you an article for the week. This week we're going to do a video, which can be found on PragerU.com. That's P-R-A-G-E-R, letter U, PragerU.com. This is just a five-minute presentation by a fellow named Otto Bronze Peterson, noted Danish economist, and he demolishes the myth that Denmark is a socialist country. Bernie Sanders and others like to hold up Denmark as saying, that's what we want for the U.S. Well, that's very nice, but Denmark is not socialist. You know, they have higher taxes and government spending than we do, but Denmark achieved its great prosperity when it was a low-tax nation. Then it went the Bernie Sanders way, put on a lot of high taxes, vastly expanded the welfare state, and then went into economic crisis. And since then, Denmark has been scaling back welfare schemes. It is moving more and more people into 401k type of plans instead of the traditional Social Security plan. It has good property rights. Better than the U.S., it's easier to start a business in Denmark than it is in the U.S. And they also, get this, Bernie and other socialists, Denmark has no minimum wage. In healthcare, more and more people are going to the private sector because they don't like those weight lines that Bernie Sanders type of socialist medicine would bring us. 
So in the real world, what Bronze Peterson calls the Disneyland of socialism does not exist. Sorry, Democrat socialists in this country, you're living in a dream world. And now we come to our very special guest, Bert Malkiel. In the 1970s, Bert Malkiel came out with a truly revolutionary book called A Random Walk Down Wall Street. On the basis of that book, we did a cover story at Forbes. And he was one of really, I think, the first to challenge intellectually the idea that you can pick individual stocks and beat the market. He sort of paved the way for what gave intellectual underpinnings to what Jack Bogle did at Vanguard, who several years later in the mid-1970s came up with the first index fund, got off to a slow start, and then became the big, huge industry that it is today and has literally saved hundreds of billions of dollars for individual investors. And uh, Malkiel sort of pricked the bubble of those who figure with a lot of analysis, you can uh, beat the market. Some can, like Warren Buffett. But for most people, you're going against the odds. And he demonstrated that if you go with a handful of uh, low-cost index funds and do it in a disciplined way, by golly, with dollar-cost averaging, which means uh, when the market goes down, you're putting a certain amount in each month or each year into your retirement plan or whatever plan, uh, you end up buying more shares. So when the market goes up, you get an extra kick. Over a lifetime, you'll beat the market. You'll beat most money managers. I still shudder looking back at 2008-2009, which was one of the most intense and worst bear markets in history. The averages went down 54, 60% individual stocks even more. And a lot of people got out of the market. They just couldn't stomach the downturn. The jokes about your 401k is now a 101k. And so people left. So uh, Malkiel's wisdom is needed more than ever. Don't give in to your emotions. Now that's hard to do, like saying, lose weight, eat less. Yeah, easy to say. But I think what you should do is take his wisdom and at least apply it to your retirement plans. And you'll have a very nice retirement if you ever decide to retire. Well, we have with us today uh, Bert Malkiel. He's Emeritus Professor of Economics at Princeton University, two-time department head of that department, former dean of the Yale School of Management for seven years, 1981 to 88, 28 years on the Vanguard Group Board of Directors. And you also now have 12th edition of your classic, A Random Walk Down Wall Street. And famously, that book is known for your observing that you could take a monkey or two, have the monkeys throw darts at a newspaper listing of stocks, and the monkey's stock market performance would match or exceed that of most investment managers. Is that right? That is correct, and I have always appreciated the boost that Forbes magazine gave that book at the very beginning. Of course, there weren't index funds at the very beginning. What the book said is people would be better off if they invested in index funds. And uh, the first index fund was started uh, three years uh, later. It was very slow to catch on, but I am delighted now that more than 45% of investment funds are now indexed. So it's an idea that has caught on, and it's caught on because it works. 
So give the thesis of uh, why it does work. Why does indexing work and individual stock picking does not? Well, there are a couple of reasons. First of all, that markets are reasonably efficient. Let's say you've got a drug company that's got a new treatment for lung cancer. It announces it. The news gets acted on right away. So that news is already in the price. And secondly, even if markets were inefficient, indexing has got to work for a very simple reason. If there are certain investors who are better than others and they own only the stocks that go up more than average, it must follow that other investors are holding stocks that go up less than average. So investing in the absence of costs has to be a zero-sum game. But with costs, it's got to be a negative-sum game. And the average actively managed mutual fund charges about 1% a year. The average index fund now can be bought with an expense ratio that may be one or two basis points, a basis point being one-hundredth of one percent. And recently we've seen that Fidelity has actually announced that they will do index funds both for the S&P and for the total market at a zero expense ratio. And in fact, when you look at the numbers, when you look at what's actually done, that's exactly what you find, that the average actively managed fund underperforms the typical index fund by the difference in costs, and that difference is about 1% a year. And also, even if you don't have fidelity, you do have uh, exchange-traded funds where it's just a handful of basis points with fees, right? Sure. It's two, three, maybe four basis points. It's uh, essentially zero on these uh, ETFs that are available. And another factor, tax consequences. Walk us through that. Sure. The one good thing about the index fund is that it tends to be very tax efficient. Actively managed funds, since the market in general has uh, gone up, that they realize capital gains, often realizing short-term capital gains. These are taxable to individuals. For the index fund, it doesn't trade from security to security. It doesn't sell the ones that have gone up. And therefore, index funds tend to be very much more tax efficient than actively managed funds. Now, you make the point that ideally, if you're going to do this, you should uh, do the total market, uh, not just in the U.S., but around the world. Absolutely. What the total market is for the United States is all of the stocks that are publicly traded. And so-called total stock market funds are ones that invest in the total market. And the reason you want them all is 
that over long periods of time, smaller companies have had a slightly higher rate of return than the large companies. So what you want is an index fund that includes all of the companies in the United States. And then going on from there, the rest of the world, particularly the emerging markets, have been growing faster than the U.S. market. And so you don't want to exclude the fast-growing companies like those in India and China, where the growth has been a lot higher than in the United States. The long-run returns have been a bit higher. Emerging markets are under a bit of a cloud now with uh, some of the trade tensions that we have. But the IMF confidently predicts that they will continue to grow faster than the U.S. market. And so what you really want is a total world stock market. And today, you can actually buy precisely that kind of an index fund. So is there a judgment factor in terms of uh, where in the world you invest? Or would you say that, uh, yeah, one area will do better in one period of time, another in another, and by golly, just stick with the total market and you'll be fine? Well, the interesting thing about it is you might think particularly because emerging markets are probably not as efficient as the U.S. market, that this is the place for active management. But in fact, uh, Standard & Poor's Corporation puts out uh, a semi-annual report called a SPIVA report, S-P-I-V-A, and that stands for Standard & Poor's Indices versus Active. And interestingly enough, when they look at the active international managers who do exactly what you said, they will look for the areas in the world where they think the opportunities are the best versus an index such as an MSCI uh, emerging market index, that indexing actually works even better uh, in emerging markets than it does in domestic markets. So I say don't try to pick uh, the best emerging markets and move in and out. The fact of the matter is that just buying them all has time and time again been proven to be the best investment strategy. You mentioned emerging markets and certainly uh, their volatility is huge. But some would say, yes, despite the huge volatility over time, emerging markets will do better than, say, the U.S. market. Is there truth that emerging markets over time are going to do better than we do? Well, there is no question about the fact that emerging markets have been growing faster than uh, the uh, domestic markets. And it's also the case that the international agencies like the IMF and the World Bank project that that's likely to continue. And the reason I think it's likely to continue, let me talk now as an economist, the reason it's likely to continue is that we in the developed market, and now I'm thinking about the U.S., uh, Europe, and Japan, 
We are aging very rapidly, and the number of workers is shrinking relative to retired people and is likely to continue to shrink. It's even worse in Europe. It's even worse in Japan than it is in Europe. One of the things we know as economists is the major factor that explains growth is population growth. It's basically population growth and productivity. Productivity has been actually stalling a bit, but the population growth in emerging markets is really, really much larger than in developed markets. And let me also say that uh, particularly, I'm not a market timer, but as you well know, emerging markets are uh, under a cloud today because of all of the trade tensions, and we don't know how they're going to eventually be uh, resolved, but emerging markets are much cheaper than they have ever been in history. I think we want stocks from all over the world. They have given higher rates of return than just a domestic portfolio, and I think they will in the future as well. But you wouldn't recommend just doing emerging market indexes? You would say you better hedge your bets? No, I would do emerging market indexes. I would buy a total world stock market index and these are available from the mutual fund uh, companies. They're available as exchange-traded funds. And if you were going to buy one investment, that would be the one I would recommend. Would that be something like uh, VT from uh, Vanguard? Exactly. And uh, talking about a little, uh, just a diversion for a second on China, uh, China seems to be demographically in the position of a growing economy, but they're going to face the same problems we have because of their one-child policy. Is that right? China will still be in a very good shape in terms of workers until 2025. There are still things that are happening in China, such as happened in the United States, with people coming off the farms and into the workforce. From 2025 to 2050, you're absolutely right. China will be the emerging market that has more of the demographic headwinds than India or Southeast Asia or even Latin America. But it's not going to happen for another five or ten years. Now, here at home, some will say that you can beat the market by doing small cap stocks over time, value stocks over time, momentum investing. Comment on those vis-a-vis straight vanilla indexing. Well, uh, you're absolutely right. There's been a lot of empirical work that uh, financial economists have done that shows that, again, over long periods of time, so-called value stocks have had a little higher rate of return. And this gets into what has been a very popular tendency to have so-called smart beta. As I look at the records of smart beta stocks, 
I am not impressed. It's true that for uh, some periods of time, particularly starting in the year 2000 when we had this bubble in tech stocks, that value stocks did particularly well. But the last five or six years, value stocks have not done as well. Similarly, small cap stocks have done very well much earlier in the decades, uh, and they have not done particularly well recently. And so when you look at the smart beta offerings, I think that the smart beta offerings have not shown that they have been better than overall index uh, funds. In some sense, smart beta funds have been uh, high expense funds, and smart beta may be more smart marketing than it is smart investing. So uh, again, my uh, view is you're much better off with the simple straight index funds. Now, just to find smart beta, most of us think of beta as volatility. And uh, you know, if you're as volatile as the market, you're one, less, more, less than one, more than one. So uh, quickly define smart beta. What smart beta is, is look for the riskiness and the risk premium you get from small companies. Look at the risk premium you get from deep value companies. The smart beta is really weighting the portfolio by the factors of value, of size, of momentum, and so forth that have traditionally given a little bit higher rate of return in order to goose the return of your portfolio. And, you know, Steve, the one thing I think all of us who talk about investing need to be very modest about what we know and don't know. But the one thing that I am absolutely sure about, and that is that the lower the expense ratio I pay to the purveyor of an investment service, the more there's going to be for me. And the trouble with smart beta is these tend to be very high expense funds and higher expense ETFs. Uh, momentum. You've, you've hit small caps in uh, value. Is momentum fall into the same trap? They have great periods and then absolutely back, back to the mean? Uh, absolutely. Uh, momentum for a while looked like, boy, investing is uh, very easy. You just buy momentum. But what we know about momentum stocks is that they are subject to what's called momentum crashes. They work for a while, no question about it, but uh, they don't work all the time, and they tend to be very risky. Bert, on uh, bond indexing, people who want seemingly less risk, they want to go for income. I think you've made the point that it's not quite as uh, straightforward, especially with U.S. government bonds, as uh, an equity index would be. Can you walk us through that? 
Sure. Uh, I think what you have seen for government bonds, let's say you want to be super safe. You just want to be in uh, U.S. bonds. You want to be in German bonds. And unfortunately, because sovereign countries have manipulated their bond markets to have very, very low interest rates, I think it would be a mistake to just say, I want to be in government bonds. I mean, government bonds are still very low interest rates in the United States, but in Germany, some of the 10-year German paper has actually had negative yields. So my feeling is in these ages of what are often called financial repression, what you do want to do is be very broad in the bonds that you want to hold. And uh, again, I would prefer to be in the corporate areas where you do get at least some amount of yield. But for being in the corporate area, there I say still, indexing is the way to go. Again, the so-called Standard & Poor's SPIVA reports show very clearly that active bond managers do not beat the bond index funds because of their very low expense ratio. So again, there, I'd be very careful about thinking I want to be absolutely safe. I want only government. I wouldn't do that. I would go to corporates, uh, but I would index rather than actively manage. Well, thank you very much, Bert Malkiel, uh, distinguished uh, now emeritus professor at Princeton, having the 12th edition of A Random Walk Down Wall Street, almost 2 million copies in print. Thank you. Thank you very much, Steve. Appreciated it. Thanks for listening to What's Ahead. I'm Steve Forbes, looking forward to next week. And if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this show, we at Forbes sure would appreciate it. 